Well, we're going through the book of Luke together. And we've reached the point now where Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem and is in his final months of earthly ministry. And so how would he change the way he's speaking to the crowd? What would he alter or adjust at all? Well, it is worth noting, it's worth noting that 20 of his parables all fall into these final six months. In other words, 20 are packed into this final stretch of ministry, which means, I hope, if you've been paying attention at all to what I keep telling you about parables, that he has now taken off the gloves and is throwing some serious body punches to the crowd who is listening. In other words, I believe he is heading into a shock and shake final sermon series because he only told a parable when he wanted to shock us and shake us out of our conventional and human way of thinking because he desperately wants the crowd to understand that who gets into heaven is not what people naturally think and is not what religious leaders have already taught for so long. And I might add, is still with us today, you guys. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Try to be good, pick somebody out that's worse than you, compare yourself to them, and feel pretty good about it. That's not, not what the Bible teaches and not what Jesus taught. And so this great chapter that you're going to recognize some of it, chapter 15, this great chapter of the Bible is one of the most shocking of all, actually, because you're going to see over the next four weeks, we're going to stay right here for four weeks, you're going to see over the next four weeks that this threefold parable, he tells a threefold parable of lost sheep, lost coin, and two very lost sons, is the magnum opus and centerpiece of all his great parables because these are gospel, grace-filled parables. All three of them have the same great plot and the same gospel theme. Something valuable has been lost, a sheep, a coin, a son. Jesus wants to find it and bring it home. And when that happens, all of heaven goes crazy and celebrates in a way you've never seen here on earth. Because nothing matters to our God more than lost sinners coming home to him. Because he is a seeking, saving God. Go to Luke chapter 15 now. Go to Luke chapter 15 and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. See, he tells a parable when someone's so not thinking what they should be thinking. 
So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, here's what he's going to do. He tells you what this celebration looks like on an earthly level, and then twice he's going to pull back the curtains of heaven and say, but when this little bit of rejoicing happens, let me tell you what's happening up here. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, look at me. He's being sarcastic. There ain't nobody that doesn't need to repent. But they believe they are in that category of righteous people that don't need to repent. Every single person, doesn't matter how you're living, where you're from, what you've done, or what's been done to you, you need to repent. You desperately need Jesus. But he's talking to them, self-righteous people. Verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I'd lost. Just so, now he goes heavenly again, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now we're going to stop right there because we got three more weeks where we're going to dig into the prodigal son a lot more. But here's all I want to do today in this first message. All I want to do today in kicking this great chapter off is get you to wrestle with two questions that I think every single one of us needs to wrestle with. Here's the first, number one. Do you love the way Jesus loves? Do you love the way Jesus loves? Oh, listen to me. If you're familiar with this, and most of you probably are, you you think the parables, and they are, are about, oh my goodness, we have a God who seeks and goes looking for lost sinners. Yep. But there's actually two things he's wanting to do with these three parables. Yes, he absolutely wants to amplify the gospel and put on display that he came to save helpless, hopelessly lost people. But there's a second thing he wanted to do in these three parables. He also wants to correct and clarify how often, it's often, we've seen it over and over in the book of Luke, how often the religious crowd, the morally upright, and I might add uptight, actually get in the way of lost sinners coming to Jesus and so often become their excuse. Here's why I'm not interested in Jesus because if these are his followers, 
get in the way of lost sinners and keep them from coming to Jesus because they fail to love them, miserably fail to love lost sinners the way he does. Two things are being taught in these three parables. Look at the start of the chapter again in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Oh, listen to me. You probably were not totally uninformed on this chapter. Yeah, I've heard about the prodigal son, lost sheep, lost coin. But I would predict that the, a huge majority of you never knew the context What caused Jesus to launch these three parables out there? What was going on? Verse 1 and 2 tells you what was happening when he said, Whew, it's parable time, and it's verse 1 and 2. That's what's happening that caused him to say, Oh, my goodness. If you overlook or diminish the context of what kicks off these three parables, then you will not be as shocked and shaken as he wants you to be. Context changes. Because these parables, you guys, offer incredible hope to lost people. Mm -hmm. And they are a blistering response to the religious crowd, the moral majority, the uptight, we're better than other people, we've never done bad things. It's his blistering response to being criticized and attacked by the religious crowd, ready, for spending time with all the wrong kind of people and loving well the wrong kind of people. In fact, at this point in his ministry, notice the way verse 1 is worded. They, sinners, drew near to him. You realize what's going on? They're coming to him on their own initiative. He's not having to go out in the highways and byways and say, and and notice at this point, he's been around for two and a half years. They aren't running from him saying, oh my goodness, here he comes. He's gonna condemn us and criticize us and rail against us again. Run. Oh, they're running, but they're running to him to hear him again. They drew near to hear him. They're coming back again and again to hear. What was it they were hearing? You guys, if you've been around for a while, familiarity breeds contempt. This message of the gospel that we sing about, talk about, traffic in, is a message that is unlike any other message from any other religion or religious person that's ever been proclaimed in this world. It's unlike any other message All they had heard from the religious crowd was condemnation and shunning until you're more like us, which isn't likely. There's no hope for you. And so we spend our time being careful to not spend time around anybody like you because it's look at us and try to be like us and you can earn your way to heaven by being better They're coming to him. And it's worth noting this because I've tried to point out to you, crowds have been flocking, right? Huge crowds. 
But I keep pointing out to you, they're all coming for different reasons with different agendas. Guess what? They're not coming to be fed. It doesn't say that, does it? They drew near to him to what? Say it. Say it louder. Here. Oh, here's what I want you to realize. The people who thought, oh my goodness, he just fed a thousand. They have fallen away and gone back to their normal jobs, life as they knew it. Oh, well, that was super cool. Maybe he, that's the kind of Messiah I want, bread king. If he could do that every time, we wouldn't have to work so hard. Like, you realize, you remember when he he fed 5,000, what did they say? Oh, my goodness, you must be who you say you are. Tell us about heaven. They actually went across the other side of the lake and said, do it again. Because they quoted the Old Testament and said, yeah, that was pretty cool, Jesus. Moses in the wilderness gave us manna, how often? Every day. It was a jab. You did it once. That's how hard the human heart is, you guys. The human heart, apart from the grace of God, wants help right here, right now with earthly, immediate things. And they're like, shut up about heaven. I'm not in heaven. I'm right here. I need your help right now. Or... They wanted him to be a revolutionary who would throw out the the Romans and turn things over politically. Everybody had an agenda. They have fallen away, you guys. They're not coming to be fed. But I guarantee you some of these sinners, the way they were shunned in that culture, were hungry. They're not coming to be healed. I'm sure some of them limped. Some of them were blind. Some of them were... They're coming to... Say it again hear what he has to say because it's not like any message they've ever heard from religious leaders before at all at all at all so let's be clear they were not coming to him because he catered to them or compromised anything for them they're coming to him because he cared for them and offered them hope. No one had ever cared for them or offered them hope that they could be forgiven, that they could be right with God, that they could be in the kingdom, that they could go to heaven. No one had ever cared for them or offered them hope. That's why they're coming. That's why they want to hear more. And when you see that word sinner, so who are these sinners that are coming? Luke uses the word sinner 13 times in this book. We've already seen it a couple times. Remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at a party at one of the Pharisees' homes, and a woman comes in from the street who is a, say it, sinner. And begins to wash his feet with her hair and perfume, and they're like, oh my goodness, if he knew who this was that was touching him. Every time this word sinner gets used in the book of Luke, it is referring to moral lawbreakers, adulterers, fornicators, prostitutes, swindlers, shysters, and any other kind of riffraff that they considered social outcast in that day. And so now with that in mind, who this is that's coming to him, look at verse two again. This man, say the word, receives Sinners, and I don't want you to think, what's the big deal, Brad? Let me help you with the big deal. The word receive is the operative word, you guys, that changes 
what is happening here. And it is why the religious crowd was so upset and attacked him the way they did. Because he doesn't just socialize with sinners or accept an invitation to one of their events. That'd be bad enough, right? We're going to see that in Luke 19 where Zacchaeus, he says, I'm coming to your home. I'm going to come to your home and eat with you. Oh, when we get there, they don't like that either. But this is beyond that. This is not him socializing with them or accepting an invitation. You realize that word receive is he's the one hosting the event and bringing them in, inviting them, inviting them. And that was more than the religious crowd could fathom. In fact, when they criticize him for, you know, the, the, and they said it out loud, this word grumbling means it's vocal. It's just, it's just moving through the crowd. Oh, you receive sinners and eats with them. When they said that, they didn't use the normal Greek word for receive. The normal Greek word for receive is dekomai. And I've told you before, in the Greek language, you have little prefixes you can put on the front that ratchets things up. They use the word pros dekomai, which was saved for when you invite somebody in and treat them on the level of a dear friend or family member. He prosdecomized these people. He receives them, brings them close to him like a friend or... So understand when we sing songs like Jesus, friend of sinners, I don't think you're thinking enough about that, how special and amazing that is. Jesus, friend of sinners, doesn't mean you're my friend, but I don't want you near you, near me. He brought them in like someone dear or a family member. Lots of times when you want to understand what's going on and get the impact of it, you say, well, where else is this word used? I'll give you another place where it's used. In Romans 16, when Paul, there's a woman named Phoebe that was a leader in the church. She carries his letter. Paul writes this amazing letter to the church in Rome. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Who carried that letter to Rome and gave it to them? Phoebe. And here's what he says about her. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. Receive her in the Lord. Same word, prostekomai. Receive her. He's receiving sinners. In other words, he doesn't just allow, sometimes we're, we're guilty of thinking, yeah, Jesus didn't kick out sinners the way other people would. He allowed them to be in the room, but they're not the main crowd. They're hovering on the edges. They're lurking in the shadows. They're there, but barely there. No. He embraced them and pulled them in like family. Now, as shocking as that is, guess what? It's not the most outrageous thing being said in this verse. When they say, it falls flat on us, when they say, and eats with them. When we think of eating, it doesn't mean what it meant to them. You know, There was no driving through a drive-thru, grab a bag of burgers and woof it down. We hardly even share meals together anymore. A meal for them was a big deal. It took a long time to prepare it. And who was at your table made a statement. Who was at your table made a huge statement. 
and he eats with them. Get this. In their Middle Eastern culture, who you ate with, when you ate with someone, it was giving affirmation and approval to them. Especially if you were a rabbi or a spiritual leader of any kind. They were very careful who was seen eating at their table. Because a meal was far more than filling a belly. It was making a statement. It was making a statement. It was making a statement. Now, be careful. Don't hear what I'm not saying, what the passage is not teaching. He wasn't affirming that she's a prostitute. Good, do that some more. I love it. Here's what he was doing. He was stepping across the cultural line and risking, huge risk, being criticized, slandered, misunderstood, and attacked by the religious crowd. And he didn't care. Because, get this, until you meet sinners, this is what he would do, until you meet lost sinners where they are and as they are, and love them as they are, you rarely get the opportunity to speak truth to them about who they could become by the grace of God and for the glory of God. He created a context for loving lost sinners well and new. He's being slandered. Remember, you can find places where they're like, he's a glutton and a wine bibber. Why were they saying that? Had they ever caught him staggering the streets drunk or throwing up? No, he spent time with people like that. And that's the assumptions people make. Well, if he's with them, then he's like them. Jesus risked being slandered, misunderstood, criticized, and attacked because he came to save lost. Say it. Oh, that was weak. Louder. Say it like you are one. Hello. Sinners. Praise God. He didn't come to tweak and give a little boost to self-righteous people who've never done anything terrible and just need a booster shot spiritually. Sinners. And therefore, he loved them well, received them, and drew them in without compromising his character or watering down his message at all. So, teenager... This is not your message to say, yeah, that's why I hang out with bad people. I'm going to tell my parents, yeah. If you're hanging out with bad people to do bad things and to be bad, this is not your sermon. You may be at a place in life where this is not a good idea for you. I'm talking to believers who are walking with Jesus and know Jesus. None of us are perfect, but are rooted and grounded in Jesus and are filled with the spirit of Jesus. He wants us to draw lost sinners in close to us and to be with them. You don't have to make, make, make them your best friend, but is there anybody in your friend network, anybody who's lost and living very different than you? Or has your life just settled into all I know are other believers that think just like me? That's not, that's not what he wants going on. Receive them and eat with them. He didn't he didn't compromise his character or water down his message, but he was willing to risk being ill thought of. Let me tell you, if you don't love people as they are and where they are, you'll probably never get a chance to speak to them truth about who they could become. 
as, as I reach out to people and try to, and, and you say, oh, but it's awkward, Brad. <laughs> Hello, it's awkward. Yes, far easier for me to just hang out with people from my small group and people from our church. You get with people like this, like so much of what's coming out of their mouth, I don't even agree with. Mm-hmm. Do you think these prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, as they spent time with him, had cleaned themselves up in their mouth yet? They're probably saying things. Jesus is having to decide, how much do I let go? When do I step in? What do I say? What? He'll help you. He'll help you. He lives in you. It's like, all right, I'm supposed to be willing to risk and go to the neighborhood cheese and wine open house, even though so much of this being said, <laughs> oh, wow, I feel weird. Good. If you never feel weird anymore, you're probably not with all the people you should be. Willing to risk, willing to feel awkward moments because he meant for us to love them so that we can speak the truth to them. That's why I love, we've got people in our church doing this well. This is not a spanking Oh, I love our church family for so many reasons, but here's one of them. We've got people in our church doing all kinds of things that are ways to love lost sinners well for an opportunity to speak truth about who they could become in Christ. Jessica Doring in our own church family has a ministry with a team of ladies targeting and going after and showing love with meals and hygiene products and just love, practical help in life for women who are caught up in the adult entertainment industry. You think that's awkward? Yeah, you gotta show up at the back of the club. Someone might see you and think you're dancing in the club. I don't want anybody to think I dance here. It's a risk. Just make sure you're dressed modestly and they might think, oh, that's weird. I wouldn't pay for a dancer to look like that. You know, they get kicked out by managers who don't want them there because they don't want to lose these women, right? It's a horrible industry and we've got women in our church Pros deco my, receiving them and love. They're not standing at the back of the club saying, you know, you're going to hell. Jesus could save you, you wretched prostitute thing, you. Sometimes Christians think that's what you're supposed to do. God forbid. You do not see Jesus, go through all four gospels, railing against and condemning lost sinners. He rails against self-righteous, moral, majority, upright, uptight crowd. They're the ones that drove him crazy, and he railed. Woman caught in adultery. Doesn't rail against her. Now, he doesn't say, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. He says, go and sin no more. Woman at the well who's had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband, offers her living water. I could go on, you guys. We got to get our marching orders and our example from Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we might see Ourselves making a greater difference. You don't see Jesus just rolling down the window of his, well, chariots didn't have windows, but whatever. And just hurling some truth towards someone. Because I don't want to get too close. I don't want to be infected. And I don't want someone to think I'm like them. Nope. Take a risk. Draw them in. Like a dear friend and family. When? Before they've changed. You love them this way before they've changed. And that's what causes them to say, why would you do this? I'm so not like you. I know this is not what you think or agree with. Why would you love me? Why would you help me? So let me get really practical. 
Here's a question I get asked all the time because we are living in a tough day. It's not like people are doing horrible things now and they're secret about it. Everybody's public and unashamed and bold. So I get asked this in our church family all the time and I get asked it in every city I teach in every year, all over the place. It's a mom or a dad or a sister or a brother or a friend who is wrestling with and is all torn up over how do I relate to my adult daughter, my adult son, my brother that I love dearly, my good friend, now that they are boldly, I don't mean like sheepishly, boldly living in ways that's contrary to God's word. It's at, and they're promoting it. They're boldly living this way and promoting and doing things that are contrary to God's word and making choices and even holding to and promoting these values that are contrary to God's word. Here's the question I get. Should I let her come for Thanksgiving dinner this year like we've always done in the past? Should I let him come for Christmas? We always do Christmas Eve and that's when we open. Should I let him come this year? Should, should I celebrate the birthday and have him with us? Should I? And here's sadly what I find you guys. In 99% of the cases, they've already made a decision. So I'm not sure why they're, at, well, I do know why they're asking me because I just said something different in my workshop. They've already said, until you change this, you're not welcome in our home. You can't come. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not come for three days at Christmas and have sex in the bedroom, even though you're not married, fornicate right here in the house. You don't have to do that. I'm talking about it's not you can no longer come to this home. We don't want to be around you. We don't want to acknowledge birthdays until you, and I know this is hard, guys, because it'll be a mom and dad. Like, we, we raised her in the church. We taught her. She did Calvary Cougar K through 12, and now she's living like this. I know, I know. Take the example of Jesus. In every instance, I say, yes, yes. Welcome them, invite them, let them be at your table. Yes, is it awkward? Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, Vicki and I have said to each other, oh my goodness, we've had a ministry to bad guys that we would never in a million years have had any contact with, but they've eaten Christmas meals with us and Thanksgiving meals with us as we had people with the last name Bigney doing things with these people. And we wanted that Bigney still at the table and that Bigney isn't coming unless this bad guy comes too. Great, come. And you know what we believe? You have a chance to shatter some of the stereotypes that lost people have about Christians. That I hope they saw us laugh. We, we actually are pretty doggone fun. Laughing, nobody's got a lampshade on, no one's throwing up, and, and there's laughter and banter and conversation. It might be the first time that person has ever been that close to Christians. And they're like, what is this? I don't know this. It's very easy for them to also stay distant and set up this stereotype, this straw man. Christians are hateful, Christians are judgmental, Christians just condemn everybody, Christians think they're better, and we've earned some of that. But some of the choices Christians have made, we need to shatter that. And here's the second question I'll get sometimes. Well, I don't want to enable her. Let me help you here. Don't hear me saying you give them money and you help them with their lifestyle. If you know he, whoever it is in your family or she, is spending all their money on drugs, don't give them money. I'm talking about loving them 
And you can, it's dicey, but you can do this. Because here's the deal. Loving lost sinners does not enable them. It disorients them and disarms them and causes them to say, what is this you have? Because I know, especially if this is a mom, daughter, dad, son kind of situation, they know they're breaking your heart. They know it. They know it. And then if you still love them, but see, sometimes moms and dads say, well, I'm trying to prove a point. God hasn't called us to prove points. He's called us to love. That's one of the most powerful things. Loving lost sinners as they are, where they are, is not enabling someone. It's likely to disorient them and shatter and cause them to say, what is this? I mean, so hear me. I've had people with my last name that I've kicked out of the house. So I don't want you to think, oh, so they can just do whatever. That's how I love them. What was happening in our home, what was putting our home at risk, et cetera, I'll spare you the details. I said, you can't live here like that. But I didn't, like the Jewish thing, tear my shirt and say, you're dead to me. Oh, my goodness, I prayed and prayed and prayed to keep a bridge of relationship. And still, if we were all meeting at La Rosa's, as a family, invite that person. Even though they look disoriented and on drugs and awkward and it's so hard to be around them, it's painful to be around a loved one when they're like this. But we would invite. And yes, Christmas, and yes, Thanksgiving, everything we could do. If this person texted me and said, hey, Dad, you want to blah, blah, blah? I didn't say no. I dropped everything and said, yes, I'll walk nine holes with you. I'll do whatever, even though, no, I don't want to walk nine. And then as we did, you can imagine... Everything that's coming out of their mouth, I'm like, oh, i got so many things I want to say. But I'm wanting to love them and then look for opportunities. I'll never forget, you guys, by God's grace, oh, I prayed and prayed and prayed. This person that I put out, I was like, I don't want them to not think I love them. Oh, God, help me to have a bridge of relationship. And after about a year of living bad with bad people in bad places, it was frightening to even know a little bit of it. This person called me. Now, if you know anything about this journey, when you have something like this, every time that person texts or calls, it's bad news. It just tense up. Ah! What have you done now? Is it a felony? Is it, is it, is it? And they said, Dad, I gotta talk to you. It's hard, but it's good. I'm like, put me in the ballpark. I'm in North Carolina. I've taught Friday, Saturday. I'm sitting in the airport. I got to fly home. We had three services then. I got to preach three services before I can meet with you. I don't think I'm going to sleep without knowing what have you done. And he said, it's just, I'll talk to you when I see you. It's hard, but it's good. And I get through three services by the grace of God. And I'm sitting in my den with this person that I put out, but I kept loving and had a relationship and this person leaned forward, I'll never forget. By the grace of God, you guys, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I want you to know this can be done. Lean forward and said, Dad, you're a good dad. And I don't know how you haven't torn my head off. I was like, well, this is just the grace of God. <laughs> I've, I've really wanted to twist it and tear it and bounce it, yes. But his love in me has helped me. And then he said, I'm tired of living like this. Will you help me? God. And, and so don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. You're like, oh, but that would be so hard. I've had parents who've met with me 
And I understand it perfectly. I had a mother one night meeting with him, and her daughter, adult daughter, had done so many hurtful things, had slandered her, and they lie about you. I had people in this church calling me, just railing and rebuking me because one of my adult kids had talked to them, only told their side. They talk bad about you. They slander you. They lie. Is it easy to keep loving them? Oh, no. And this mother said, I think I know the answer, Pastor Brad, but am I allowed to stop loving her? Now, if you haven't been through this, you might be confused. That's weird. Let me help you. It hurts to keep loving. All right? If you could just say, I'm done, it's easier. But he's called it, love hurts. Love hurts. But you keep doing it because he will help you. I said, no. She said, that's what I thought. And she kept loving that girl. Oh, but it's hard. So don't hear me saying this is easy. Ooh, it'll be hard and hard. You would almost rather not be around them because it's so hard to be around them and see what they're doing now and what they're like. But he's called us like he did to prospect, receive them and say, God, help me with my own little heart. Help me with my dad heart or my brother heart, sister heart, best friend heart, whatever it is, to love them like you love them. And here's what I see over and over, you guys. I have opportunities as I've tried to do this. Then guess what? Life's hard, isn't it? Something hard happens in their life. And if they know you love them, now, you can, you can be at the gym and make it clear to everybody because you keep saying, I don't want you using the F word around me. Please stop cussing and would you stop talking about her? Oh, there's a Christian. When they're in a trial, are they gonna come to you? No. I'm talking about you have so communicated even though they know, they know what you actually believe and yet you love them. When they go through something, they often will come to you. But they're not going to come if they don't, aren't already convinced you love them. You love them. And then you can say, here's what I have. The only reason I'm different is Jesus. Could I share Jesus with you? Love, real love. Do you love people the way Jesus loves people as they are? This is, you know, this is, if you're saying, Brad, based on what? Well, based on Jesus right here, but my goodness, it's based on so many other verses in the Bible. Do you realize? Like, Re- like Romans 5. When does he love us? Look at Romans 5 there. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for people who were already getting it together and cleaning themselves up and turning towards him. He died for who? Oh, but there's more. But God shows his love, demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still, say it, sinners, Christ died for us. You realize I kept saying to myself, and I still say it today, Vicki, I'm not telling you stories about what, what it used to be like. We're still in it, you guys. I still have some people I love dearly with my last name. And it only gets more awkward as, as time goes on, right? This is right now, still trying to do this, but I keep thinking, I'm supposed to show them what God's love is like. When does he love us? While we're still sinners. If you start communicating to your son, daughter, friend, whatever, oh, I'll love you when you get it together. That's only when I'll love you. Then you haven't put on display 
the love of God. Supernatural, he'll have to help you. Jesus loved sinners, you guys, while they were still looking and living very much like sinners. He doesn't say punish them, shun them, hold them at arm's length and show them that until they change, you don't want to be around them and you will not love them. But oh, there's a second equally important question that I think flows from this passage. Do you love people the way Jesus loves them? Number two, do you celebrate what he does? Do you love the way he loves and do you celebrate what he does? I hope you heard it as I read the passage because it is not, it is not subtle. This passage is loaded with over-the-top joy as a response to every one of these lost and found situations. Over-the-top joy. Look at verse 6, when the lost sheep is found. And when he comes home, he calls his friends together and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. You realize it's a human thing. Surely you've sensed it in yourself. When you are just like, oh my goodness about something, don't you want other people to know about it? Like no one wants to look at the Grand Canyon by themselves. Look at this. When you finally found whatever that thing is that's so important to you, you, you tell other people, you post it on Instagram. It's like you want others to rejoice with you. It, it only ramps up your joy. Both these are situations like rejoice with me for my sheep that was lost has been found. But then goes from earthly and pulls back the curtain of heaven and says, just so I tell you. You know, people love to think like, like what's heaven like? What's going on in heaven? What? Well, here's a place where he tells you some right now. Now, this is happening continually. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous, I might add, self-righteous people who don't think they need repentance. Look at verse 9. When the woman finds the lost coin, it's the exact same pattern. She calls together friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin. Go heaven. Just so there is joy before the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. Now I want you to look at verse 10 a little more carefully. Because I want you to see something in verse 10 that often gets overlooked about God. When you think about God, what is he like? Characteristics, attributes. He's holy, almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Yeah. You see something in verse 10 that we don't as often think about or attribute to God as much as we should. Now, you might assume if you read it fast and you're not being careful that it's the angels rejoicing in heaven. It doesn't say that. Look at it again. There is joy in the presence of the angels. Oh, the angels are watching someone else's joy. The angels are being caught up in someone else's joy. The angels are being led to rejoice and someone else kicks it off. Someone else started it. It erupted with someone else first. Whose joy is it in verse 10? God Almighty. Do you realize 
God Almighty comes up off his throne and erupts with joy every time a lost sinner comes home. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's why I love baptism services. I don't even want to know it if you're that person. Like, I don't even come on baptism Sunday. I've got bad things that I think about you. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Sundays. Oh, when you hear the stories of people that got saved, saved. They were lost. They've been found. Saved, saved. Vicki and I went home last Sunday and we talked for a solid hour about the testimonies word. We were so excited. God Almighty comes up off his throne. We tend to think, oh my goodness, if uh, 5,000 got saved at once in the, in the stadium, we think big. How many does it have to be? comes up off his throne in a way that the angels are like, oh my goodness, what is this? What is this? Just last week, my wife had lunch with someone in our church that we've known forever. They've been here over 20 years. I have five pages of prodigal kids that I pray for that grew up in good homes that are living wild and hard. And I pray. And her son got saved. God saved. God did it. Oh, my goodness. He was saying all kinds of scary things. And then he called them and said, I've gotten saved. I mean, save, save, save. I'm telling you what? I. When you, and see, here's the other thing. What you've been praying about, you celebrate. If you never pray for lost people, then it's not that big a deal to you when they get saved. Hello. I mean, I was like, oh, my goodness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And then it feeds your faith for the rest of the list, right? God can do this. God can do this. God wants to do this. He's a seeking, saving God. This is unlike any other religion. He goes after lost sinners. But you guys, he wants to use us. He wants to use us to first receive them. Risk being ill thought of by whoever for spending time with them and show them that you love them and be filled with the spirit and say, God, when's an opportunity to speak some truth and tell them about the hope of Jesus and who they could become? Joy, joy. And listen to me, here's why this matters. Have you noticed in our culture, they don't want you just to allow for certain lifestyles anymore. They want you to celebrate it. Have you, have you sensed that? You must celebrate it. Why is that so important? You see right here what God is celebrating. Let me help you. What you celebrate will dictate what you prioritize and focus on most. What you celebrate will dictate. It, it changes how you live and what you think and what you're focused on. So it's very important that we get his heart. I think it's worth noting that I think love and joy are two of the most powerful emotions we have in this world. Love and joy. Because they have the potential to shape you, motivate you, and send you out into this lost world with a very different focus. You've got eyes for seeing lost people in a different way. And you're excited and you celebrate and you love and you cry out to God. And so it's worth noting that Jesus takes these two great emotions, love and joy, and redirects them and says to us, 
do you love people the way I do? And do you celebrate what I celebrate most? I'm glad the Bengals are better this year. I'm glad they actually played in the last game like we thought they'd play all year. But you guys, if the only time you come up out of your seat is when Burroughs connects with Jamar Chase for another pass, or when you get that house you've been wanting, or, 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 don't hear me saying it's wrong to be excited about things in this life. I got things I get excited about. But I want God to keep my heart like his heart, that everything else is secondary. The greatest celebration you see from Brad is when a lost sinner comes home. Oh my goodness, an eternal destiny has been changed. Oh my goodness, look what God has done. And oh my goodness, you're aligning yourself more with what he's all about, who he loves and what he celebrates. But as I close, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, so glad you're here or you're listening online, I want you to notice this is a God like no other religion, seeking, saving, looking God. Everything in our passage convinces us that Jesus is not reluctant. He's relentless in his pursuit of lost sinners. But there's a word that gets used two times I want you to note, verse 7 and verse 10. It's a sinner who does what? Repents. He is seeking. He is pursuing you. He loves you. But guess what? You have to repent and let him save you. Let him rescue you. And that is not easy for human beings. Even lifeguards and, you know, the people at the beach that are trained how to help us. No, one of the biggest problems is when they swim out there and get to, that the person thrashes around and tries to do something. And they need you to completely, what? Relax and just surrender and let them hook their arm under you and drag you to the beach. Listen to me. You have to choose. Repentance means turning from something to You must repent and turn from what you've been trusting in and clinging to and depending on and let him rescue you. Give up control of your life and say yes. You hear people talk about she's trying to find herself. You guys, stop trying to find yourself. Stop trying to define yourself. Stop trying to defend yourself. Instead, come to to the end of yourself. And say, yes, Lord Jesus. Right now, as you are, not when you get it together. Right now, he'll take you as the mess you are. He loves you. Let him save you. Oh, God, thank you for being a seeking, saving God. Thank you for your spirit now that is at work in our world. And thank you that we get to be your people. Little Jesus at the gym, in the grocery store, in that neighborhood. Oh, God, give us eyes to see lost people. Help us not to be afraid of lost people. Help us not to condemn and criticize and judge lost people, but to love them as they are so that you might give us the opportunity to speak to them about who they could become by your grace and for your glory. Use us, use us in these last days. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.